Hello and welcome to the Sellerman Podcast with me, Sam Wilkin. Uh, this time I'm speaking to Ben Walgate of Tilling and Wines and of Star of Crow Cider, which is actually how I first met him at the inaugural Cider Salon down in Bristol a couple of years ago. He was pouring his Star of Crow Cider there and we, we had a good chat for the uh, podcast. I just wanted to touch base with him a bit because his approach at his farm uh, just outside Rye uh, down in East Sussex is very much in harmony with the people I've been speaking to over the last few weeks, that kind of regenerative biodynamic approach. And there's a feeling for me, certainly, that that's existed for a much longer time uh, in something like biodynamic natural wines. And I wanted to speak to him a little bit about that, a little bit about what his projects are at the moment, how he's been doing through the COVID crisis, and also what comes next. Um, if you've had a chance to try any of his wines, you, you've, you've clearly enjoyed them because they are all really special. Um, up until this year, in fact, he's been using grapes that he's bought in, but he planted uh, around 10,000 vines back in 2018, and we're starting to see the fruit coming uh, on those. So there'll be small batches coming up from his own vineyards uh, from this year's vintage. So that's really exciting. Um, but look, have a listen to Ben. We talk a bit about farming, about wine, and about the future. Here's Ben Walgate for the Settlement Podcast. I was born into farming. My family farmed for generations uh, in the northeast of England. Um, so as a kid, I was exposed to sort of livestock farming and arable and, um, you know, following my dad around the farm and, you know, picking things up, but also having, um, a, you know, um, a pretty s- strong connection with nature. I mean, I grew up in, you know, in the middle of nowhere, miles from the nearest town, or, you know, no other kids in the village uh we had a tiny village it was all the farm workers really and it was just me and my brother so we spent a lot of time you know in the woods and out in the fields and um and you know when you're a teenager and you're thinking about going off to university you don't think about you know the last thing I thought I would wanted to do was be be a farmer it seemed boring to me and not only that it was a case of you know um, my dad ran the farm and his dad ran, you know, the farm before him. And it was a case of dead man's shoes. So it was never once to cross my mind I'd end up being a farmer. I just took it for granted, I think, my upbringing, as people do. And I went off to do humanities at university and, um, and yeah, I've sort of ended up coming, going full circle. But so as my um, coming full circle started with getting into, getting into wine. So I worked in wine shops at university and worked in hospitality (coughs) and um, it was when I started to taste biodynamic wines this would have been you know 20 years ago in Ogbins um, that they really started to pique my interest you know there was some you know really interesting wines that were obviously different they um, and you know tried to quantify that they were wines that really spoke of the place and also the producers just really captured the imagination the way they talk about the, you know, the, how they want to look after the soil, that, you know, grapevines come from living soils and the idea of the notion of terroir. Um, for me, I was, you know, I was doing, studying a bit of philosophy and ancient history at the time. And, um, and it just, it, it just really, really fascinated and appealed to me. And I, so I eventually, uh, towards the end of the university, ended up going out and visiting some vineyards um, and spent um, a couple of weeks working with a little domain in Burgundy that were just beginning, you know, their journey into converting to biodynamics. And that was it for me. It was like the combination of being outdoors, doing physical work, um, which, um, you know, spoke to my sort of farming background and awoke something there. And then also just the love of wine and the idea that 
you know, this glass of something could, um, you know, taste of the dirt that it came from and the atmosphere around it. They were, it was, it was pretty intoxicating stuff. And so I came back to the UK and trained, I went to Plumpton. I did, just wanted to get the foundations of viticulture and knowledge from there. And um, I did two years of, two years of that. And then um, was, you know, was convinced that I was going to be a wine producer and that I was going to make uh, wine farmed in a way that was respectful to the soil. I mean, even then when, when I was there in Burgundy, um, you know, I went, went around some big, uh, you know, some vineyards owned by gigantic negotiants, um, you know, that would treat their vines with helicopters, you know, putting the spray on from helicopters. And even the winemaker was saying, our soils are degrading. You know, there's no, nothing's been put back in, you know, and through um, cultivation, herbicides, the soil's basically losing, you know, all the organic matter's going, the soil's being washed down the slope onto the main road. And you, you know, you could see it firsthand. Whereas the other guy was like, no, no, no you know, we've got to, got to change that. We've got to you know, go back to horses, go back to manures, go back to letting, letting there be a balance. I think the world of natural wine, interestingly, is, is sort of ahead of the curve in terms of adopting these kind of biodynamic, regenerative approaches to agriculture. And you're yeah. seeing it much more now in, you know, particularly down in Cornwall and places like that, where the pasture is so rich in kind of, you know, meat, the meat industry. Dairy, I think my, my sort of cheese and dairy industry has got a way to go to catch up, but there's definitely people starting to go, oh, this is really interesting. This actually, we could create a product here that exactly tastes of the dirt and the atmosphere. The natural wine movement really started... Um, in, in and around Beaujolais, what, 30, 35 years ago with uh, Foyard and um, Chauvet and people like that. And um, I think maybe for them it was because um, it's a perennial as well and you don't, you, there's not much you can physically do with the soil. And I think the continuous banded use of herbicides and, and cultivation and compaction, you, the, um, you can see the, the degradation of the soil very, very um, obviously. And I think on the other hand as well, when you do start to change things in the vineyard and bring in low intervention winemaking, the difference is just so obvious in the glass. Whereas I think with, with um, broad acre crops and, you know, horticulture, you know, the tomato still looks like a tomato. And it, as far as most people are concerned, it still tastes like a tomato. I mean, um, and, and people seem to be all right with that. But obviously with, with natural wine, natural wine sort of, um, so obviously different and the way it's presented is different and it's kind of like a bit it's it's just more it's just more of a call to action I think but I think as well what's interesting about that going back is that really what you're talking about are methods that are ancient you know I've heard other people yeah. describe it as peasant farming you know it's that kind of the farm is this kind of I, I saw in an article you describe your, your ambition for a kind of a closed gate system if you like so you know everything that you need to fertilize and look after the great is all from the farm and that in a sense just reflects farming from say hundreds of years ago and actually we've got so far away from that in a kind of striving to absolutely control nature and I guess it's people like you you're almost like a I don't know I almost see you guys as almost like surfers like you're just kind of riding a wave rather than trying to control it I don't know how much it feels like you're just trying to let things happen or, or you know what's your approach yeah, in that everything, everything that I do happens very organically um, it's not particularly well thought out and then it, it makes you look as if you know what you're doing um, but <laughs> you know it's like the, the fact that we've ended up making so many cubes kind of happened by accident 
the fact that we use the design agency we do and we've come up with these wonderful looking bottles mm. again it was just through being introduced by a friend yeah sure i've got some experience and i you know i need to take some credit for it all um but it's it's not you know it's not preconceived it's very reactive which is exactly what low intervention winemaking is all about rather than being prescriptive and saying i'm my customer at waitrose at eight quid expects sauvignon blanc like that therefore I take those grapes, I do X, Y, Z, manipulative winemaking to get to point B. Um, every, everything's the opposite way around. It's, everything's reactive. You react to what fruit you get um, and it ends up being what it's being. It's, it's a biological process. There's no chemistry involved. And I think that's the fundamental difference for me. And I think there's a danger that um, uh, to, to natural wine and to the perception of it that um, some people are, you know, are proper hippies and they inherit, like, they get their hands on some great vineyards and uh, the vineyards are already working well and then they do some low intervention winemaking and, yeah, it's great. Um, although it can be, it could be mousy, it could be, uh, it could have any of them but winemaking vaults through having a bit of a laid-back, surfer-esque approach to the winemaking. It's not just based on a kind of a dude's instinct. It's not what, that's not my implication, really. It's more like... Do, do you know what I mean? It's it, there's real kind of re- research and and knowledge, but actual actually, I suppose it's a mindset shift in that people see the value in it. I don't mean the pounds and pence value, but the kind of the wider scale value in this approach, and therefore people are doing research and they are pushing the agenda. So, what's interesting about you is that you you know the final product is 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 you know so well respected and kind of well so well received that you do you find yourself in a position where you're an are you more of an advocate for your wine or for your approach obviously the wine's created a lot of noise um i want the and and to be honest um the, if we're not careful the sort of the initial wines uh in some ways because they're made from fruit that's bought in and there's you know i'm trying to buy the best fruit that i can but there's there's cockle regeneratively farmed vineyards or organically or biodynamically farmed vineyards in the uk so i've had to buy in fruit that some of which is conventionally farmed um, so in some ways, I'm, you know, some people would say, well, he's a hypocrite. He's talking about regenerative farming, but he's buying in conventionally farmed fruit. Um, but it's just, um, you know, it's a means to an end. I've just got to get to the next stage where all of my fruit's coming online and my financial sustainability relies on being able to sell wine. The wine's done, a, you know, done a wonderful job, but we haven't really, I haven't really felt like I've had the platform yet to really talk about um, to talk about the farming and talk about the whole ethos and trying to, I mean, I wanted the farm. The reason why we have the tourism here as well is it's about, yeah, sure. I love hospitality. Yes. It's a great revenue stream, but ultimately I want to showcase what we're doing here and I want to be able to, the wines to, to advocate the process as well. The journey started with buying in grapes and you planted what with a view, is it next year that you're looking to, to make purely from your own vines or? Yeah, we planted 10,000 vines in 18 and around 30,000 vines last year. Mm-hmm. And the first fruit, we'll get a small crop off the 18s uh, this year. So we're, it's gonna be really small. We had a bit of frost earlier in the season, but yeah, we're building up. And as we build up, we'll bring down the bought in fruit and then just try and only buy in from people who share our ethos in the farming. And it's sort of fascinating to see the different approaches that you use. So things like, 
you know, you'll see a sprayer, an image of a sprayer going down the vines and it looks, you know, it looks like a conventional sprayer spraying some sort of pesticide, but actually it'll be a kind of concoction, a sort of a tea, if you like. And is that a traditional method or is that something you developed yourself? Um, so, I mean, I, I'm no expert on any of this, um, <laughs> any element, um, but the, my approach has sort of been, you know, 20 years or, you know, longer from, you know, my farming background, um and certainly with wine for 20 years and just going around you know it's a it's empirical just picking up um stuff from conversations and from you know books and 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 then just you know occasionally have to pick the phone up and call another uh you know winemaker to get advice but um yeah so i take i did a course in biodynamics i've been reading around um regenerative agriculture for a while and it's, it's a real melting pot um so yeah, we we you know we've used um, biodynamic applications both for compost making and for um, you know BD five hundred mainly for which is a, basically a microbial tea cow, uh, composted cow poo buried in a cow horn comes out transformed um, colloidal packed full of millions of microbes and then we we use that as a soil dressing and as a foliar application to increase the number of microbes in the vineyard. Um, and then there's, there's new stuff. So some of the new biological controls, you know, we put on a, a bacterium yesterday, which, you know, elicits an immune response in the vine to help protect it from botrytis. So that's, that's, that's cutting edge stuff that you wouldn't normally associate with biodynamic farming necessarily. Um, and then plant-based teas. So yeah, we, um, I picked some horsetail, Equisetum arvents, which it's got very high silica content and you know boil that up the night before and then dilute it dynamize it and dilute it and that all of these things are going in the same spray spray tank uh, mm. with some seaweed and a bit of sulfur um and so far it seems to be working the vines you know the, the we've had a very dry dry spell not a lot of rain and the you know the vines are showing a little tiny bit of nitrogen and magnesium deficiency because the you know, there's not that much moisture in the, stru- in the soil for nutrient exchange. So, uh, but in terms of disease and general well-being, the vines uh, are looking really, really good. But it's interesting. I saw uh, a cider maker, Wilding Cider, were using um, whey. I, obviously, I thought that was fascinating because that seemed to kind of really tie into, you know, these sort of older style kind of silvopasture, you know, animals and trees coexisting. And, and, and that, just that that works seems like a really fascinating way to go. I mean, I, I guess, what's the tradition of, of having animals grazing alongside vines or are the vines too low for that to be anything other than really risky? So the, um, just comment on the way thing, uh, we are, we've just started a pizza operation here. We're trying to make as much of our own mozzarella as we can from a local organic farm. It's raw milk. It's amazing stuff. We're getting butter and yogurt and stuff for them for the rooms for breakfast too and so when we're making mozzarella there's like 60 percent of the milk is you know comes out as whey or more and we're we're going through we're generating about 150 liters of whey a week just from making mozzarella mm. um and the great thing is yeah we're tanking it and then i'm going to start using whey and whey in the spray round because yeah it's meant to be really good for as a as a curative i believe for mildew um so that's that's really exciting and it is, again it's like zero waste and in terms of the farm diversification and closed gate, you know, our farm was, you know, it's been a farm for since the 14th century. And it was, that was just when it first appeared in tax records. So potentially much, much older than that. And the farms, you know, this farm had hops, it had livestock, it had arable, 
Um, and everyone thinks it's sort of like, okay, so the arable goat goes off to make bread or the milk goes off to do that. But it's, it's, not, it's not a case of just outputs. It's about the, the relationship of all of those things, true rotations. So we don't really have rotations in modern arable anymore. It just goes, you know, wheat, rape, beans, wheat, wheat, beans. It's, the land's always been worked hard. It's been cultivated hard and we're getting lots of glyphosate and salt-based chemicals in salt-based fertilizers into the soil. There's never any rest. And that's why, you know, that's why we need to have regenerative agriculture because we need to rebuild our soils and the use of, you know, proper rotations with livestock um, and then resting ground. Um, obviously you can't rest a vineyard because you can't just rip the vines out and then go again, you know, <laughs> they're there for 50 years or more. Um, so with us, we bring the livestock into the vineyards when they're not in leaf. You can set up orchards so you can bring in certain types of sheep, mm. um, but we'd, it would be impractical for us to, um, to sort of to go with a high trellis system, like some of the trellis systems they use in Italy and stuff like that. Um, it just wouldn't really work for our viticulture. But, and I think it's great, the fact that we can get livestock in there in the winter still doing the job. I think that's what's interesting about what you're doing is that you are creating this system that is, that is man-made, but you are f- you're sort of taking so much from sort of inspiration, if you like, of the way nature just, just does things and, and ma- makes it work. And, and you end up with this incredible product. Nature, nature can do it all on its own. We just, we just, you know, stupidly thought we knew better, you know, with the industrial revolution and, you know, after the first world war incentivizing cheap food production, cheap food production, the common agricultural policy, it's just one massive fuck up after another. Um, and you know, it was, it was only just over a hundred years ago that we were kind of doing it. Okay. Um, and obviously, you know, that's when Steiner stepped in, you know, and started talking what he was talking about. It was a result as a result of mechanical industrial agriculture around the first world war. Um, so it's not, it's nothing new there. We just have, we're kind of having to relearn, but also I think we've got, we've got the tools now and the science to be able to fast track it. Um, because you can't, I think, you don't want to sound like some crazy alarmist conspiracy theorist, but um, the, the, state, the state of our soils is, is horrific, you know, and some people are talking about, you know, ext- the extinction of the human race in 70 years because of the state that our soil's in and the state of the food that we're eating and the things that are in it. Um, so, yeah, there's a real compelling reason to do, to do what we're doing. Are we in a kind of moment of opportunity at the moment? In a sense, there is this refocusing of people's priorities and understanding of, you know, the complexities of something like COVID, for example, not just coming out of a market in 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 China, but actually that that it's also inextricably linked to the way that we interact with the environment as well, and and so that sort of raised the profile even more so of that particular debate we're also heading you know headlong into brexit and the idea of you know the shift of how landowners are are subsidized which is quite yeah. an interesting take on it the sort of you know public money for public good approach do you feel like we are in in a period of opportunity to push this specific agenda or do you think it'll get lost in amongst all the noise it can it can take you know you know catastrophic events to you know to to create change but um you know how well we are prepared to, to to exploit that opportunity i really don't know um you know the effect on people's mental health and the you know the um other repercussions of this remain to be seen but um 
you know, if there was an opportunity, it's now. And I think, you know, you do, I think a lot of people have realised, you know, that maybe the way they were living was maybe out of whack or whatever. And there's been obviously a lot of talk about changes in the way that people buy food and the rise in local, you know, sort of locally grown box schemes and buying direct from the producer, cutting out supermarkets because people don't want to go to the shops necessarily. They're all like, they're all really encouraging things, but how much people will slip back into their old ways or not, I just don't know. So that was Ben Walgate there uh, from his farm down in Rye uh, with his on-tap wine and his pizza oven. Um, It sounds like a really exciting place to be and lots of interesting things happening, improving soil health, continuing to make a delicious product, uh, taking the leap into producing his own grapes so that he's got full control, that kind of closed gate system that we talked about. Um, Ben's just one of those people who makes things happen and makes delicious things along the way. I hope you enjoyed listening. See you next time for the Salomon Podcast. The Salomon Podcast is produced by me, Sam Wilkin. If you want to know more about Salomon, go to Salomon Sam on Instagram and Twitter or check out the website salomon.co.uk.